Lord, if you're going to be our vision the way we've sung a few moments ago, we need you to open our eyes to behold you. You open your eyes to see you in many different ways, Father. We see you in people. We see you when we hear stories of answered prayer. We see you when your word illumines our hearts. And as we've been reminded this morning, we see you in unexpected times, in the dark places. But you have to do whatever it takes to open our eyes to see you, Father. Only then will that vision of who you are become an enduring, sustaining vision for us. So we ask you again to just press into service every dimension of this worship encounter this morning. And now in the next little while, especially your word, to answer that prayer that we've just prayed. For when we see you as you really are, we will understand ourselves as we really are. And in joyful partnership with you, we will serve and grow. We have already acknowledged you as untamable, uncontainable, incomparable, indescribable. Awestruck, we humbly bow before you. We also hear what you said in your word to that man where I look who is lowly in spirit and contrite in heart and who trembles at my word. So we humble ourselves before that awesome word because you have exalted your name and your word above all things. For your word carries behind it all the weight of your name and your character. It is because of who you are that your words are weighty and deserve our full attention this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. The havoc that has been caused by the bombing of the Boston Marathon was perhaps succinctly captured in one story that I read on Tuesday morning, very briefly. An eight-year-old boy was dead, his six-year-old sister had a leg amputated, and their mother was lying in the hospital with severe brain injuries. I suspect the father would rather have been dead than remain alive. What would be long-term consequences to a family like that? Will they even survive? I don't know. There are no answers to those questions. Then we ask the bigger questions. Why? Why do such things happen? Now, there are some answers to questions like that, but they never really satisfy the heart, even though they may make some sense up here. And there are other questions for which there are no answers. For some of us, this event came uncomfortably close. We have good friends of ours in California whom we got to know during our sabbatical, whose daughter had just finished running it 15 minutes before the explosion. And a young man who grew up in this congregation failed to qualify for the Boston Marathon by 10 seconds. 10 seconds isn't long in a run that's over 2 hours. If he had qualified, his family would have been waiting three young daughters at the finish line. And for most of us for whom it did not come that close, something like this exposes our vulnerabilities. We are not safe. There's no such thing called safe anymore. Three thousand years ago, a poet in Israel asked this question. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? His answer was found in the very next verse. 
The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. And you combine that with the opening words of that psalm, in the Lord I take refuge. And so here is the ancient answer to the ancient question. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The righteous can seek the Lord who is in his temple on his throne. That's why this 90 minute exercise that we are going through, that you go through every Sunday, is absolutely crucial because that's what you're doing. You're seeking the Lord on the throne in his temple. The tensions that are caused by heart-wrenching questions that have no easy answers are not in the final analysis resolved by intellectual analysis. They are resolved in worship. And this morning I want to kind of unpack three significant dimensions or aspects of what is involved in seeking the Lord who is on his temple and in his throne. Because there happen to be three things that are suggested to us from the text in Isaiah where we are today. Again, so timely. Just a quick recap because it's been a few weeks since we were in Isaiah. We're in the last major section of the book. We've seen the picture of the suffering servant of the Lord painted for us and God's answer to the question of their sin that got them into this mess was the work of the servant of the Lord. But he has continued to teach us in these few chapters that he still expects his people to be marked by righteousness and justice. At the same time he has underlined for us that we do not have that within our DNA and we are unable to produce the righteousness and justice and therefore God says I myself will do it. Just as the suffering servant of the Lord took care of your sin, he said, and the penalty of that sin, the work of the conquering Messiah, the anointed servant, will cause justice and righteousness to come forth. And the 60th chapter painted this beautiful, glorious future for God's people, Zion, that they will be so marked by the glory and the beauty of God that they will attract the nations to them, and together they will worship the same Lord for the joy of all of the people of God. And that led to the 61st chapter of Isaiah, which is the centerpiece of this whole section, where the anointed conqueror himself speaks. And here are some familiar words for us. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And we learned how Jesus in Luke chapter 4, beginning his ministry in Nazareth, quoted these verses and said, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your sight. Let's pick up Isaiah at that point. The people respond to this news, to these, to this glorious promise of the anointed one. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bride decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will call righteousness and praise to sprout up before the nation. The response of the people to these beautiful words of the anointed conqueror is worship. They rejoice and they exult. And in the context of Isaiah, rejoicing and exultation after the declaration of the work of the Messiah is almost always joyful singing. Poetry and music are harnessed together to express a joyful response. And they use the very language and images that the, 60, that the conqueror has used. 
They imagine themselves as participators in a joyful wedding, where a, where a groom dressed in royal garments comes to receive for himself his bride, dressed in beautiful clothing. They speak of themselves and exult in the fact that they will be fruitful soil in which God will plant a seed and bring those oaks of righteousness to bear. They see themselves as objects of God's delight, producing the fruit that he expects from them. Because that's what he has promised. <laughs> and so they exult and rejoice using the very language of the promises that reveal the nature and the purposes and the plans of God. So that's the first thing. The first thing that God's people do when the foundations are crumbling is to worship the Lord in his temple on his throne. And in this context, I'm using worship particularly to that which we've been doing so far, which is the singing, harnessing poetry and music to express our worship. And here's the key thing. The content of that worship is shaped by the very words in which God has revealed to us his nature, his plans and his purposes. So this is something, in my observation, that Christians need to learn and never forget. And so I remind you of that periodically. In many cases, in many settings, I've observed that many of the songs that are used in worship make liberal use of affirmations like, I will sing, come let us sing, let us praise, let's praise, hallelujah, praise. The language and the words are used, but you don't know anything about the person yet. I mean, just imagine for a moment if I were to call Scott up here for a moment. And I said, come everybody, let's praise Scott. Scott, we're going to praise you. Hallelujah, let's praise Scott. But you don't know one thing about him yet. I've used the language of words of praise, but I haven't praised him at all. On the other hand, if I hadn't come on up here and said, look, let me introduce you to my friend. He's one of the most vulnerable, honest people that I've ever known. By the way, he's incredibly dependable. Anytime I expect him to be there, he's always there. I haven't used the word praise once, yet I have praised him. Because it's his nature that forms the content of the praise. True worship needs to be substantial. With its content being shaped by the nature, the plans, the purposes and the promises of God. And not just a superficial harnessing of the vocabulary of words like praise and worship. I'm so thankful for worship leaders like Solomon. David was right in pointing that out. I mean, look at the kind of songs we've sung this morning. Glory. The king has come. We had substance. Indescribable. Uncontainable. You put the stars. You, we humbly bow before you. That's substantial worship. That's the first thing we learn. The second thing we learn from this text in Isaiah about this dimension of worshipping the holy Lord who's on his temple and his throne is the result of that kind of worship. Remember, this section was largely written to Judah in exile. Exile was a time of crumbled foundations. Back home, the temple was raised to the ground, the land was devastated, and right here, there was the internal devastation of sin that got them in this mess, and Babylonian captivity. It wasn't a pretty place. And yet, they're exulting and singing in that place. Because... Substantial worship that is rooted in the nature, the plans and the purposes and the promises of God has the ability to integrate and put pieces of our life back together even though the circumstances haven't changed. So that in exile we can rejoice and exult. My favorite modern day poet Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He said, 
The raw material served up by the day is disordered and turbulent. Last Tuesday certainly was, or Monday. We ourselves are many-hearted and conflicted. How can we master such a mob? Is there any hope for harmony in chaos? In worship, God gathers us to himself at the center, so life is not lived eccentrically. Failure to worship consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks at the mercy of every advertisement, every siren and every seduction. Without worship, we live manipulated and manipulating lives. We move either in frightened panic or deluded lethargy, alarmed by specters or soothed by placebos. Thus we are swept into a vast restlessness with no steady direction and no sustaining purpose. Life lurches from one partial satisfaction to another, interrupted by ditches of disappointment. Do you want life like that? (laughs) Or do we want substantive worship that integrates and puts the pieces together? Now, for us to actually experience the integrated power of worship, requires some active participation on our part. It requires our attention. It requires our engagement with the songs, with the poetry, with the music. (coughs) So that we can allow those images, those truths, the substance of which is the nature, the plans and the purposes of God, and bring them into those crumbling foundations, whether internal or external. Then we experience a little bit of the integration. But if we're thinking about lunch this afternoon while we're singing the songs and our mouths are just repeating familiarly the words, nothing much is happening. So it requires that active engagement on our part. As we avail of what has been spread out before us. More of this as the sermon continues. So that's the first thing that God's people do in times of crumbling foundations. They worship the Holy Lord who is on His throne in His temple. Isaiah continues in chapter 62. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoices over you. Of course, for Isaiah, when he says, I will not be silent, it means I'm going to stop, I'm not going to stop preaching. Because he was called to preach. God's nature, God's plans, God's purposes and God's promises are not only the fuel for substantive worship, they are also the fuel for proclamation and teaching. For Isaiah to say, I will not be silent, means I will not stop preaching those same things. And the content of his preaching, just like worship had a content, the content of his preaching was what? The new name. He said, I'm going to preach the new name that God is giving you. And he listed, you will not be called forsaken. You will not be called desolate. But you will be called objects of God's delight. You will be called, and look at the images he uses, you will be called a crown and a diadem. He he pictures God's people as a crown that God places upon his head to complete his glory. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine 
A people who are shattered by their own sin and by external chaos being described as those who will complete the glory of their God by being placed upon. He said, that's what you're like. You're like crowns and diadems in the hand of my God. He was preaching their new destiny. This is who you are going to become. And notice also the words he said, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until, until her righteousness. In other words, not only will I preach, I will keep preaching until God's promises for my people have become real. Until he has finished his work of making them so glorious that the nations will be attracted and together they will worship God. Until the wonderful vision of chapter 60 becomes real through the work of the servant. See, what drives this preacher is the gap between where the people of God are and what God said they really are like. (laughs) This is your new name. This is where you are. And I'm not going to stop preaching until you become like this. So why does he do this? Because he likes the sound of his own voice? Because he likes to get a large crowd around him? One of the first part of his preaching ministry, they said, I just stopped preaching. Or because he gets compliments? No, he tells us why. Later in the text in verse 12, God says to him, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him. And his recompense before him. He preaches and he will not keep silent because God told him to. The same God who told him in the earlier stages of Judah's sinfulness when they were heading into exile, when he said, Confront the people, lest I send them to exile. Now he says, Comfort the people who are in exile. Tell them what I'm going to do. The promise of future glory is both the content of Isaiah's preaching and the motive for Isaiah's preaching. So that's the second thing that God's people do. The second thing that God's people do when the foundations are crumbling is they listen to the preaching of the word of the Lord in his temple on his throne. And the content of this preaching is not clever commentary on current affairs. You can get that in the newspapers and Time magazine. But the word of the Lord. Probably the clearest statement of this comes from the pen of the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And whenever I feel my preaching zeal slacking, Here's another quotation from Eugene Peterson that has helped me. He said, It is of great importance for Christian believers to have from time to time a reasonable, sane, mature person stand up in the midst and say, God is, and go on to complete that sentence intelligently. There are tendencies within us and forces outside of us that relentlessly reduce God to what can be measured, used, controlled, or felt. Insofar as we accept these reductionist explanations, our lives become bored, depressed, or mean. The preacher offers his mind in the service of saying God in such a way that God is not reduced or packaged, but known, contemplated, and adored. With the consequence that our lives are not cramped into what we can explain, but exalted by what we can worship. So today with the Boston Marathon bombing in your background, and our own vulnerabilities in the foreground, you do not need CNN or Fox or even my clever declarations. You need God to be declared as who He is. So will you listen to some of these declarations from Isaiah in weeks gone by? Chapter 8, verses 12 to 14. Do not fear what they fear. 
Do not be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary. You want safety? That's where it is. Then listen to Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. That is why our weaknesses can be a bridge and not a barrier. Listen to Isaiah's God in chapter 14. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Not rebels from Chechnya, not Boston, not Toronto. And then Isaiah 33. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom and knowledge, and the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. You want stability? That's what it is. It is not human cleverness, but thus saith the Lord that has the power to engender faith to live in the midst of crumbling times and foundations. And I said it's not only when the foundations are crumbling outside of us, like in this past week in Boston, but from within us as well. The promise of Isaiah chapter 60 and 61 for God to beautify Zion finds its fulfillment in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Ephesians chapter 5 when he talks about how he feels about the church. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Faced with our weaknesses, faced with our failures, Faced with our own sinfulness, we need to hear preaching that reminds us of our destinies. Of what we are becoming to the work of Jesus Christ. You and I need to hear Isaiah's promise in chapter 60 fulfilled in Jesus' words. You and I need to hear that new name declared over us. You need to hear that this morning. You are not forsaken. You are not desolate. You are the objects of God's delight. You are a crown and diadem upon his head. It's an overwhelming thing when I think of that. I mean, how can the glory of sinful people be? The, or the deputy be the glory of God? There's a weak analogy in marriage. The more radiant my wife is, the more there is some silent testimony that I'm doing a few things right. Her glory is ultimately my crown. The beauty of the church is God's glory. Do you think he's going to finish it? If that's what's at stake, that's how guaranteed these promises are. We need to hear them. Do you need to hear preaching that declares that God is on the throne over the Boston Marathon, over our sinfulness, over our weaknesses and over our failures? You need to hear preaching that paints a picture of invisible reality that has the power to penetrate and reinterpret visible realities for us. If we're going to live in the midst of crumbling foundations. Now again... 
for preaching to have this kind of actual effect in you. It's going to require the same kind of engagement as for worship to have integrative effect. You need to stay involved. You need to pay attention to the nature, the plans, the purposes and the promises of God that hopefully are shaping the preaching. You need to be alert to which dimensions of that God are relevant to the foundations of your life, inward or outward, and allow invisible reality to penetrate the visible realities of your life and thus transform how you're feeling and acting. Now, of course, this is where the message hit me the most because I'm called to preach. And I look at a text like this and I say, I'm not going to be silent either. I'm not going to be silent for Zydraxdale's sake. And I'm included in that. And I'm not going to be silent and I'm going to keep preaching until, until he fulfills this work in us. Until he keeps on making us beautiful people who will attract the glory of the nations. So together we can worship God with joy. Isaiah has shown me how to preach the realization of your destinies. You're not desolate. You're not forsaken. You're the delightful objects of a glorious bridegroom who holds you as a diadem in his hand. By the way, it occurred to me in these days of transition as you're continuing to pray for the next person who's going to become a preacher, pray that he will be this kind of a person. Called by God who will say, I will not be silent until God has accomplished his purposes of making you beautiful. Who will feel that inner compulsion to preach the glories of God the Father and Jesus the Son. So, the people of God in times of crumbling foundations, they seek God who is on his holy throne in his temple by worship that is substantial and by listening to the preaching of the word of God. And then thirdly and finally, Isaiah says to this, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. And give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise of the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. Earlier for Isaiah to not be silent meant I will not stop preaching. Now to not be silent means to keep praying. Because that's the text of this text, is to, is to keep praying. And Isaiah says four things in here. First of all, he says, don't be silent, pray. Secondly, give yourself no rest, which means don't stop praying. And thirdly, and I just love the graphic nature of this imagery, he says, give him no rest. It's like, don't, don't stop bothering God, is what he's saying. We all know we have children, how they bother their parents at times. I mean, can I have this, can I have this, can I have this? No, I told you, no, can I have this, can I have this, can I have this? Don't bug me. Leave me alone. Very reverently, Isaiah is saying, don't stop bugging God. Don't give him any rest. That's what he's saying. Don't stop praying. Pray. Don't stop praying. And don't stop bugging God. And how do you bug him? You remind him of what he said. That's what it says. God, you've sworn. You've sworn by your arm. Remember your mighty, powerful arm? The arm of the Lord that we first met in Isaiah 53. Plead the work of Jesus on the cross. And then the mighty arm of the conquering king, this double-fisted arm of God, in weakness and in strength, conquering, both dealing with the penalty of sin and then the power of sin in our lives. That's what you swore. That's how you stop 
Don't stop bothering God. You keep taking a hold of Him by His promises. You see, just as the promises and the nature and the purposes of God are the fuel for substantial worship, they are the fuel for solid preaching, they are also the basis of our praying. Notice again the word until. I will not stop preaching until. And he says you don't stop praying until. The same thing happens. Until he makes Jerusalem the praise of the earth. So that's the third thing that God's people do. When the foundations are crumbling. They persevere in prayer to the Lord who is in his temple on his throne. By the way it's the only kind of God to whom praying makes any sense. Have you noticed something? Whenever these tragedies happen on this large scale. We see two things put side by side on televisions and nobody ever wonders that they are both contradicting each other. On the first, we have all kinds of platitudinous statements about prayer. Obama promises to pray. The TV anchor, our prayers are with you. Our prayers are, you heard that all the time. Our prayers are with the family. Wonderful. Next segment, where is God in all of this? No, he has nothing to do with this. Really? Then why are you praying? These two segments come side by side and they never notice that they don't, they clash. The only kind of praying that makes sense is if there's a God who is on the throne and who is holy. You see, our problems are that we we sometimes can believe that God is holy, meaning good, but He's not powerful. So this good God wanted to do something to stop this horrible thing that happened, but He was powerless to stop it. Other people say, He's powerful, He's on the throne, but He isn't good. Isaiah says, He's both good and holy. And you'll never figure that out up here. It is when you come into the temple and worship. When you engage with substantial worship in praise. When you pay attention to substantial preaching. And when you pray fueled by the substance of who God is and what he's done. Then you will break through to the conviction that I don't understand it. But he is holy and he is good. And I'll keep praying to him. We can only take refuge in a God who is both holy and on the throne at the same time. So, what do we pray? This is a whole sermon in itself, but here are a few suggestions. This is only part of a sermon. What do we pray for? First of all, what? What is to be the content of our praying? Well, the until is until he makes Jerusalem the praise of his earth. We pray for God to do what he's promised. And in Jesus, he's promised to make the church a beautiful and a radiant bride. So, we need to regularly pray that he will make his church holy and radiant. So that's what revival is all about. Every time you hear the word pray for revival, that's what it means. It means to pray that Jesus will do what he promised he will do. Make the church holy and radiant and beautiful. And of course, secondly, Isaiah also says, till the nations see your splendor. So we pray for the fulfillment of mission. Whether it's a new connection, our Connections Church next door, Tanbridge Ministries, or way over in Malawi. And everywhere in between. We pray that, and, and the sequence is important. He makes the church glorious. And through that glorious church, he accomplishes the work of mission. So, the substance of praying, whatever form it may take, whatever the details may look like, is praying for revival and praying for mission. That's what he's promised. The how is also important. And Isaiah suggested a few things. First of all, he said, don't be silent, which means pray consistently. This is not a hit and miss thing in the lives of Christians. When the crumb foundations are crumbling, we pray regularly. Secondly, we pray boldly. Give him no rest. Keep bugging God. With his word. Just make sure that it's his word. Otherwise you're in trouble. And then something I forgot to mention. Is that we are watchmen. What do watchmen do? Watchmen stood on the walls and they waited for the, news, the sight of the runner to come with news that they have won the victory. 
Remember Isaiah 52. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him that bring good news. So this is to pray expectantly. And then lastly, as I draw this message to a close, where do we pray? Of course, our focus has been on the temple. Seek the Lord on His throne in His temple. Now you might say, well, just a minute, I don't understand how this can work. I can understand how we can listen to substantive preaching, because you get plenty of time for that in a worship service. I can understand how we can engage God in exulting praise that is shaped by the plans, the purposes, and the nature, and the promises of God. We have plenty of time to sing, but we don't have lots of time to pray. Except in a concert of prayer. Well, that's still in the temple. But right here in the worship services, there are opportunities to pray that you may not be aware of. So can I just delineate them to you? First of all, many of the songs that we sing that are substantial in their nature are in their entirety prayers. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day and by night, waking or sleeping. Thy presence, my life. That's a prayer. Every verse of that song was a prayer. Let thy kingdom come. Your glorious God, O God, engages our hearts. May Jesus Christ be praised. Give us courage, O God, to preach the word. What's that? That's all praying. You've been talking to God throughout that song. So even as you're exulting in who he is, you are praying. So avail of those opportunities. Don't just kind of let them go by. You say, oh, that's a prayer. I'm going to pray now to God. And use the words of the song to pray. If you haven't had time all week long to pray, you've been given a gift of time for 90 minutes to pray. Somebody's watching your children so you can be here. So some are part of many of the songs we sing are prayers already. Secondly, even if they're not prayers, but they're just affirmations, affirming who God is. And one of our songs was like that. Indescribable, uncontainable, incomparable. Those are not prayers, they are affirmations of God is. Listen, as you're singing those songs, if they are substantive, they are focusing on the plans and the natures and the promises of God, it's perfectly okay for you to say, oh, that's exactly the kind of God that I need to come into my life tomorrow morning when I'm facing that difficult interview. Or when tomorrow evening I have to have the difficult conversation with my neighbor. Or my conversation with my two teenagers. Doesn't matter what it is. Some dimension of the God that is just being painted is... Relevant. Well, you just ask him to come in. I remember one entire service when I came in here. Uh, I had just got an email from one of our international workers who was really, really struggling. And I hadn't heard from this person for a while. And really, there had been a long, prolonged period of difficulty. And on the point of maybe quitting. I was disheartened when I came here. And so every song that we sang, every time some dimension of God was mentioned, I just was thinking of this person. I wasn't really praising God that morning in the singing. I was harnessing the picture of God and I was bringing him into this person's situation. Now I can't prove any, any causal connection, but a few weeks later I got another email from her saying how God has changed her whole heart completely. As I said, I can't prove the connection and I'm not interested in it. I'm just saying that there are wonderful opportunities like that. Whether the songs are prayers themselves or the affirmations of who God is. It's okay to tune out the praise. God will understand. if You tune out the praise for a while because you are not going to give him rest. On behalf of this person for whom this God needs to show up in that country. That's worshipped. So there are opportunities to praise like that. Same thing is true when it comes to preaching. If in the middle of a sermon... That hopefully is magnifying God. You suddenly get gripped by saying, that's the God that I need right now to act up. Well, it's okay to tune me out for a little while and just pray for some time. Because the only thing that God cares about is whether you are responding to Him. 
True worship is our response to divine initiative and divine revelation. So there will be plenty of opportunities to pray. And then of course the actual prayer. Solomon led us in prayer. I prayed before the service. I'm going to pray after the sermon ends. Pastors come and pray corporately. They pray before the offering. Every single one of them are opportunities to engage God on the throne. Don't just kind of tune it out right now and wait for the next thing to show up. So when the foundations are crumbling, what do the righteous do? They worship the Lord, they listen to the word of the Lord, and they pray to the Lord who is in his temple on his throne. Now as I was wrapping up this message and came to a close, my mind went back suddenly to something that we heard on Friday night of Solemn Assembly. For those of you who are not familiar with our church, the first full week of every year we shut down all the programs in our church and we pray every night. We pray for all kinds of things, but on the Friday night... Uh, Pastor Alan and members of the worship team lead us in an opportunity to hear what God has to say to us. And on the Friday night, and we write down these things, and it suddenly occurred to me that this entire sermon was heard on that Friday night. You judge for yourself. Because this is one of the ways Alan usually asks me at the end of the solemn assembly on the Friday night to kind of summarize what we heard. And these were the words with which I summarized four months ago. Focus on God, especially during the worship services through the songs and the sermons, and in order to enhance your ability to listen, avoid cluttering your minds on Sunday morning with other input, and do this all with expectation. There was a whole sermon I just finished preaching four months ago. Isaiah would completely agree with us. Let's pray again. Thank you that you are a speaking God, and therefore we don't have to be silent. We don't have to be silent, and we will exult and praise you. We don't have to be silent and therefore I and others will preach. And we don't have to be silent, therefore we're all going to pray and keep bugging you until you do what you said you're going to do. Make us a beautiful people, attract others who do not know you but who need you, that we might together worship you and give you the glory. In Jesus' name. May the Spirit of God remind you, every time... The crumbling foundations either inside you or outside you conspire to try and keep you from this place (laughs) rather than becoming a barrier. May they become a bridge for you to come here that you might seek the Lord who is on the holy throne in his holy temple. Go in Jesus' name.